Friends, if you would, go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you all so much for joining us in that, that time. It's always a, a highlight of the year to be able to, to celebrate with families. I'm so grateful for this time uh, to be able to, to pray for them. Um, Again, welcome. So glad that you're here. Um, if you're hoping for somebody else coming up, sorry to disappoint you. I'm back. Uh, but I am excited to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. And if you're somebody that's newer to, to Crosspoint, um, I'd love the opportunity to meet you after the service. My name is Jamie, and it's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors. It's a privilege to invite you to join us in this continuation of this series that we began on Easter called Rise. We're looking at this letter in the New Testament called First Thessalonians. I'll read a portion of that here in just a moment. But the invitation is not just that the resurrection happened, that that is historically true and it changes everything, but how the resurrection is continuing to happen. The power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work like right here, right now. God is at work and I pray that you'll be encouraged uh, in that and that God invites us to participate in this resurrection movement that God wants to use you and me with all of our frailty and our brokenness and our confusion and all the things we're like, I don't have this figured out. And God's like, okay, cool. Like you're in the perfect spot because he loves to demonstrate his strength and his power in our weakness. He loves to showcase just who he is and his wisdom and our foolishness. And so if you feel like you're fumbling around and just like, I am, I don't have any of this figured out, welcome like none of us do, but God in his grace is ministering to us and he's inviting us to participate with, with him. And so this morning, I wanna invite you uh, to turn to First Thessalonians. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can also scan the QR code uh, that's in the pew. That'll bring up a little menu where you can click sermon notes. The text is there. Um, some way, somehow, I would love for you to have the scriptures in front of you so we can hear from God, have God's word opened in front of us. And friends, if you are able, I want to invite you to please stand as I read God's word, as we continue in this, this letter. Paul, as we will see very specifically in this, he's away from a church that he helped start and his heart longs to be with this group of people. And he's praying for them and he's pleading before the Lord for them. And he just, he loves them. Um, and so, Hear God's word for us. We'll pick it up at the end of chapter two, verse 17 through all of chapter three. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, chapter three, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, 
In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. You may grab a seat. I wanna ask us to consider a question as we make our way through this text. Again, the Apostle Paul is away from this group of people that he loves dearly, but one of the things is very evident, even as he gets a report back from Timothy, is that there's then this good work. And in another letter of Paul's, all right, when he writes to a church in Philippi, he assures them that this good work that the Lord began in you, like he will see it to completion. And that's not just true of churches in Philippi or Thessalonica, though it's true for them. It's also true for us that the good work that God began in your life individually, if you're in Christ, but also in our lives collectively as a church. Like, he will see it to completion. And there's certain things I believe that we can learn together about how does God bring about transformation? Like, you think about the kids that were up here just a moment ago, right? There are no simple steps to follow. Um, there is no way that the parents can say, I'm gonna transform this child's heart. I will do this in my own strength. I've got a bullet list of things or a spreadsheet of things that I'm, we're gonna make our way through. And we will do these things and this child will just perfectly grow up to look like whatever you want the child to look like. We know that's not how it works. There needs to be this transformation that's birthed from the inside and flows outward. Like we cannot change anybody's heart. You can't change a child's heart. You can't change your own heart, right? Like we need God to work. And that's what Paul has seen happen again and again. It's what happened to him. It's what happened in the lives of the Thessalonians. If you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, this is what has happened to you. It's what is happening to you and to me. And yet, I think there's some things in that that we see of like, then how does that work happen? Like, how does God use people? Not because God needs us, but God gives us the privilege of being used by him. What are some things that characterize us as fellow like co-laborers in the gospel? Maybe a way to ask, think about it is ask yourself this question. What type of person does God work through? And certainly one that is humble and dependent upon the gospel. And I think if we look and kind of could zoom out for a moment from the text that I just read, there's something I think that just comes across. I think it just kind of jumps off of the page. Maybe you sense this as I was reading it. It's just this idea. I mean, the big idea, right? To love God and to love others. Like there's this sincere love that Paul has for the work of God in his life. This love that he has of God. And then there's a sincere love that he has for this group of people. And friends, if we're going to be the kinds of people that God might, by his grace, work through, to see people's lives transformed, what would it look like for us to be conduits channels of God's grace, channels and conduits of, of his love and his mercy and his truth. What might it look like to be these channels of God's love? 
And I think we see some things in this particular text that I want to just highlight. There are kind of four things uh, I want to point out. I think there's far more going on in here. We don't have time for every last thing, certainly. Uh, but the first that I want us to, to see is what we see at the end of chapter 2, all right, in verses 17 to 20, that there's this, to understand love, all right, there it must be a longing, like love longs. So there's these desires that Paul speaks of. And so as we look back over verse 17, it says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, and the language there is my brothers and sisters for a short time, we were torn away, not in person, but in heart, he's saying, all right? Like, we were torn away, like, in person, yes, but not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So let's look at this. Paul's like, hey, there was a riot that took place. We got run out of town. You guys know the story. But I just want you to know, like, it's not that we were torn away from you. Our heart has always been with you. Like, we long for you. We pray for you. We love you. We love what God's doing in your life. Like, love has this sort of longing. And when it uses this language here, if we were torn away, it literally can, it's the word where we get the idea of like orphaned. He's like, we were orphaned from you. Like, have you had the, those moments, perhaps? Maybe there's just been a, a goodbye that you've had to say, maybe to a, a close friend, a family member that moved away, somebody went away to college, they got a new job, right? Like, those moments where it's kind of seared in your mind of like, oh, like, I know this is God's plan and God's will, and yet, man, that goodbye was like, that was so hard, right? Like, if you had those sort of things, it, or maybe you've been... And it's not just a general sort of grief and sadness, but have you been to a funeral before where it something, I mean, there's like something wells up and somebody who's close to the one that passed away. And it is like a, it's, it's a grieving at a whole other level. Like there's this wailing that sort of takes place and it, it rises up and it's unexpected. And it's just like, wow, that, that person, they are overtaken with grief, with a deep sadness. That's the language that Paul is saying. Like we were ripped away from you. Like literally, it feels like our hearts were just ripped out. And it's painful and it's sad. And he's like, and we long to be back with you. Friends, if we're gonna be the kind of community that is open, opens ourselves to being used by God, there has to be this sincere love for people. And then Paul says this, and with great desire, to see you face to face. Now, we read that word, and we're like, yeah, desire. And it, maybe that brings up something intense, but I don't think it brings up the intensity to our minds that Paul really intends. Because Paul, when he uses this word desire, he's using a word that shows up all over the New Testament. It's a word Jesus would speak of. It's a word Paul uses numerous times. But it's not typically used in the positive it's typically used in a negative as something to avoid. When he uses this word, great desire to see you face to face, Paul, the word, the Greek word that's being used is this epithemia. And it literally is the word that typically is translated. The most common way to translate this is lust. When you speak of the lust of the flesh, like these over, this over-desire for something, Typically, it has a negative association. But Paul, in his grappling to like, how can I communicate to this beloved group of people? He's like, I have this, this epithemia. I have literally this longing or to go as far. I mean, this would have been jarring sort of language to be like, I'm lusting for you. Not in a sinful way, but in a, 
I long to be with you. I long to see you again. I long to be encouraged by you and to encourage you. And then in verse 19 to 20, Paul says, for what is our hope or joy? He asks these rhetorical questions or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. When it speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus, it's this parousia. It's this idea of a new advent, a second advent. It literally is the the second coming of Jesus. And when Paul thinks ahead to that day, it's like what he has in mind here is he's like at the coming of our Lord Jesus, like when he comes back, he's like, what I wanna talk to Jesus about is like, Jesus, isn't this amazing? Can I show you the trophies of, of grace? Can I show you the Thessalonican church? Like that's the language that he's using. He's like, you're our hope and joy and crown of boasting, right? You are our glory and our joy. It's like Paul at the second coming is anticipating like, Jesus, have you met the Thessalonians? And he's like, Uh, Well, yeah, I made them, but yeah, sure, right? I get what you're saying, Paul, right? He's just overcome with this, like, you gotta, you gotta see these people. And it's not that Paul is contradicting his words when he says he only boasts in the, the cross of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that all fits under that because this group of people has come to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. They have a whole new life. They're these resurrection stories. And Paul is saying, because of that, There's this rejoicing that takes place. And so as we think about this, friends, we have to ask ourselves, do you and I, like, are we willing to risk that level of relational longing, a vulnerability that comes with that? Are you willing to like actually open up your heart? Because it seems that how God works is through people that are dependent on the spirit, on the gospel of God, and they are people like Paul is exhibiting for us, that have this deep love and affection. But it's not easy, right? Maybe ask yourself this, will you open up your heart to people? And before you give that, like, well, I think the right answer to that is is yes. I mean, literally think about it for a moment. Because if I could sit down with each one of you, I'm sure there are stories you could tell of the ways that you've opened up your heart to somebody and it's been reciprocated, right? And you have this not perfect relationship, but there's this growing relationship and there is strength and there's a beauty to it. And you can't just, you can't wait to spend time with this person. And for all of those stories, I bet you also have plenty of like, I risked vulnerability and I poured myself out for this person in this relationship. And I gave my heart and it was like trampled upon. And then you had that repeat in another relationship and maybe another and bit by bit, it can become You're just, we're gun shy, right? Like, do I want to do this anymore? We can tend to withdraw and to retreat because it's too painful to risk. One of the very first times I sat down with a counselor, one of the things she she asked is just say, hey, have you grieved the losses? And it's like, well, I I don't know. What do you mean? Like, you're talking about the sports teams I cheer for? Because yeah, I've been grieving those for years. But like, no, like in all all seriousness, like, have have you grieved? And we began to unpack that a bit. And what she was asking was, hey, like the role that you're even in, there are people that come and go, and even in cases where it's not like somebody left because they were mad at me or mad at the church or anything, though there are those things, but even just people the Lord would call away that were like good and dear friends and co-laborers in the gospel, and maybe they moved out of state or God called them to something else, like there's real loss there. 
And so have you grieved that? It was something that's like, oh, no, I don't think I, I think you just keep going, kind of move on to the next thing. Like, what would it look like to even open up your heart to say, hey, Lord, will you minister to those sort of broken places so that our hearts can stay tender and soft to what God would have for us, that we wouldn't go grow callous, that we wouldn't just go through sort of the perfunctory motions of like, oh, yeah, we say we love one another, but to deeply invest this is why C.S. Lewis, and you've likely heard this quote before. I know I've, I've read this numerous times over the years, but I think it's helpful to keep coming back to as he speaks of love and the vulnerability. Is like, will you open up your heart to people? He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But know this, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Love longs. This epithemia. Paul is embodying this. If we want to see people transformed by the gospel. It is a company, the conduit by which that flows is a group of people that are like, we're all in. We're opening ourselves up. We love. Love also sacrifices. Look at verses one to to the first part of verse two of chapter three. Paul says this, therefore, and he uses this phrase a couple different times, when we could bear it no longer, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ. And so Paul knows, hey, it's probably, I can't go back. I've tried. He says, Satan hindered it. I wish I had more detail on that. We'll find out someday. We can ask Paul what that was all about. But he says, okay, well, maybe I can send Timothy. I'll, I'll get that plan together. Maybe, maybe the city won't get turned into like this riot zone if I sent him. And we look at that and like, okay, that seems like a great plan. But look at how he's described. Paul says, this is my brother. It's not just a friend. This is, this is family. And then it's not just what we would expect, like Paul's coworker. He's actually, no, he like levels it up. He's like, this is God's coworker. And so Timothy played a significant role. It's not like he's just this understudy for Paul, right? He's there to just like get Paul what he needs, right? It's like, no, no, no. This is God's co-laborer, God's coworker. This one is partnered together in this ministry. This is my brother. And then For Paul, put it in the context. He's in Athens. There's a lot of opposition there. It's not like Paul has just moved on to like, oh, life's easy. He's kicking back on the beach somewhere. And like, yeah, sure, Timothy can go. I'll send him to do the hard work. Paul has his own agony and pain. And part of that is amplified because he knows, I'll send him. But my brother's gone. And I actually don't know if he'll come back. What if there's another riot? What if they kill him? What if they run him out of town? Do you see the sacrifice? Love sacrifices. J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, asks us to consider a sort of a diagnostic question. We got to keep coming back to this. The way that we will be sacrificially loving to people is when we know how deeply loved we are by the God of the universe, that he's rejoicing over you without singing right now. That doesn't mean on the weeks where you felt like you did pretty well. No, no, like even in your biggest mess-ups, if you're in Christ, he's rejoicing over you. 
Do you know that love? And if you do, it will show up in the relationships and the ways that it's exhibited, like how you love and care for those that are around you. And so Packer asks us to consider this. He says, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others? And then he lists off several things. So if somebody's observing, could they learn the quality and degree of love that I showed others, be it a wife, husband, family, neighbors, people at church, people at work, could they learn anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? Meditate upon these things. Examine yourself. Paul knew the love of God. And though it was costly, he knew how costly it was for Jesus to love him, that he was willing not only to just speak of a longing, but to actually like on the ground, like put these words into action and say, I'm going to send Timothy. He's my brother. He's God's coworker, co-laborer. And he would be left without that relationship wondering, living with that uncertainty. Paul's willing to bear that because he loves the Thessalonican church. So there's love longs, love sacrifices, love builds up. Look with me. There's more than we have time for in here, but in the second part of verse 2 into through verse 10, Paul then begins to speak of like what takes place even in this mutual encouragement because we get word that Timothy has come back, praise God, right? And so he's like, so we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then verse three, that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as has come to pass and just as you know. So Paul's, remembering, and he's reminding them, hey, friends, when we were with you, and I've sent Timothy to like encourage you and exhort you, and part of the way we're building you up is to let you know that there will be trials, that there will be difficulties. If you've been sold some version of like, hey, you just accept Jesus, and then everything in your life just is, is amazing, and there's no trial, and there's no difficulty, like somebody lied to you, like go confront them in love. He's echoing really even the words that another apostle, the apostle Peter would speak in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Hear his heart and his affection. He says, beloved. It's like pastorally, he's like leaning in, like my brothers and sisters, my beloved church family, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Notice he doesn't say, do not be surprised if the fiery trial comes upon you. But he says, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In many ways, it could be said this, the strange thing is when there's no trial. Like the more normative thing for the Christian is that there's trials and there's difficulty. And Paul, part of the way love manifests itself is that he's saying, hey, we, what we did was that, that hard work of, of building you up to let you know that this is coming. We didn't try and sell you something. We didn't try and sugarcoat something. Like we were honest with you of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now there's all the joy in the world is found there and yet know that there's going to be this hardship. There's a story that I came across this week. I remember hearing it years ago and I was reminded of it afresh uh, this week when I saw it pop up online, perhaps it's something that you've heard, but it's the, the story of, uh, that was told by uh, the guy who used to serve, this is years ago, at the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s. For many years, he served as the, uh, as the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. This old Presbyterian minister named B.B. Warfield And he would tell this story of this young 
military officer that apparently was out west and it was during a time when there was lots of like, there was rioting that was taking place. There was lots of just turmoil and there was lots of chaos. And this man, this young military officer was walking down a particular street amidst the the throngs of people and the, the, the crowds and the chaos seemingly, like all these things that were happening. But he noticed that there was this man walking toward him who did not, some, there was something about his countenance that was just like, man, this guy doesn't seem caught up in all that is swirling about. Like there was something different about this man as the story Warfield would tell. And as this mili- young military officer passed him, as they were walking opposite directions, they both happened to sort of turn around and see the other one. And that man who had passed him, as they turned around, the young officer found that man not only looking at him, but putting his fingers right there in his chest and asking him the question out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, all right, that if you're a good Presbyterian, you would know this, right? Out of this catechism would say this, what is the chief end of man? And this young military officer, amidst all the chaos and the rioting and all that, looked him right in the eye and said, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the man responded this way, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy. And apparently the young military officer said, and I knew you were the same. That there was something there that's so grounded in ultimate reality that things could be swirling about, but you know, hey, I am made to live for God's glory. That doesn't mean that things in this world are always going to go the way that I want them to. As we live in this already and not yet, we await the parousia, we await the second coming of Jesus. But what would it look like? And we talk about turmoil, tumultuous times. Like I think we're in some of that right now, right? What would it look like to just as the church embody that sort of calm? We're made for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. Like that's what you're made for, right? What would it look like for us to embody that? That's part of what love does. It builds up. It points people to those realities. Verse six says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, all right, so there's this return now. So he's like, praise God. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us as, as we long to see you. Imagine that. Paul's like, Timothy's back. The rejoicing, you made it. And the church in Thessalonica, they're doing well. He's like, wow, praise God. And they... They have a love for us, like it's mutual, it's reciprocal. And he says, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so I love that there's this mutual edification, this mutual encouragement. But let's be honest for a moment, right? So part of love is building up. And so the Thessalonican church is actually helping to build up Timothy. They're helping to build up Paul as Paul is trying to build them up. And then Paul says these words in verse 7. I'll read it again, verses 7 and 8. In all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted by you through your faith. Okay, so far so good. But then does this not seem a little over the top, verse 8? For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Like it gives the appearance that Paul is basically saying like, hey, I'm riding the emotional roller coaster that is how, is how you're doing, based on how you're doing. If you're doing well, I'm doing well. If you're like doing poorly and stressed out and anxious, then I'm gonna be all of those things. Like, is that what it means when we 
love in a longing epithemia sort of way? Are we called to just be so enmeshed with people that is Paul like advocating, be as codependent as possible? That seems to be the healthy thing. That clearly isn't it. What Paul is beautifully putting on display as we seek to love one another and build them up is, listen, your heart can long for people, and yet part of what love actually looks like, all right, when he says that like we're bound up, it's answered in the next couple of verses when he tells us, though, his willingness to speak the truth in love to them. Paul is not in this unhealthy sort of enmeshed relationship. Paul's heart goes out to them, and yet Paul also wants them to continue to grow. Look at verses 9 to 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And then look, here's what he's praying for. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, so not just every now and again, like literally, we pray earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face, yes, but also this, and supply what is lacking in your faith. I heard one pastor comment on it this way. Imagine that you get home from church today and you've got an email from somebody that says, hey, can we meet up tomorrow for coffee? I'd like to talk to you about your shortcomings. How excited are you for that meeting? Not at all, right? But it takes a certain kind of love and a certain kind of relationship that Paul has to be able to say like, man, like you're doing well, I'm doing well, like I'm bound together with you. And yet my love for you also, I want to see when he says these, these words, he's literally saying like, there are some shortcomings in your faith and your ongoing discipleship and your ongoing sanctification and the work of the gospel And I can't wait to see you face to face because I want to tell you those things. But when they know how deeply Paul loves them, this would be a welcome thing. Friends, we are invited to do this. We need to do this one to another. If we get to a point that we ever think like, yep, I'm the expert now and I'm here to pass on my wisdom, but you're not curious about your own sanctification and your own growth and you're not inviting other people to speak in, like you are like, what Lewis talked about. It's like, it's growing like in this irredeemable, like hard heartedness that's beginning to happen. You got to keep opening yourself up and also be willing to like to receive from other people, but also to give that to other people. It's like these great words from Ray Ortland talking about the fact that, listen, every single one of us has weird idiosyncrasies. There's things that like you think are normal, And then go spend some time with somebody else. You're like, oh, not everybody does it like this. You've got your own family system. you got your own dynamics, right? Some of you thought those things had gone away, and then you get together for a larger gathering. You're like, oh, no, there they are again, right? Like all of these. And Ortland says, listen, just embrace the fact you're a weirdo. And so am I, and we are all weird together. He says this, our various family backgrounds left every one of us at least a little weird, So we need an honest friend from outside the tightly knit family to round us out. Every one of us needs to go to another person and say, hey, help me see myself. Help me get sharper for Christ. And if no other person in your church is good enough to play that role for you, the problem is you. If you do not know anyone well enough yet to trust them at that level, are you seeking that person out? What a good reminder. Love builds We need to invite people into that kind of love. We need to be there for other people. 
It's gotta be rooted in though. This, this longing, this sacrificial love. It's not that you just roll up to somebody and be like, I want to talk to you about your shortcomings. Tell me your name again. Like, it's not that kind of thing. But what does it look like to cultivate this? I got, we're running out of time here. Let me close with this. Love, lastly, it blesses. Look at verses 11 to 13. Paul concludes with this benediction, that this blessing over them. And he says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Paul doesn't feel this pressure like it's up to him to do that. He's like, now may God do this. May Jesus do this. May he be the one who directs our way to you in his timing. May he make you increase and abound in love. We can't do that on our own. We need the Lord to do it. Paul longs to see this group of people. He knows he's going to be used by them to to speak even of their shortcomings. But ultimately, he's like, it's a work of God. And so he prays, like love blesses. It prays over people. It pleads for them. And he says, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Friends, this word could be incredibly crushing if we're like, golly, I got to have this epithemia. I got to have that level of longing and love. I got I to gotta sacrifice. I got to go have hard conversations, right? And then even this, like, I got to somehow like be blameless. It's like, what is going on here? Like, how can you and I actually love like this? And the key in all of this is we have to see, and it's been woven throughout as we were asked the question by J.I. Packer, like, do you know the love that God has for you? Because it'll manifest in how you love other people. It'll be easy to spot that. There's another one of Paul's letters, and he writes to a church in Ephesus, and he's dealing with some just like on the ground sort of matters about relationships. And he talks about the marriage relationship. And he has some words to the wives, and then he has some words to the husbands. And he says this in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, and there's that word, blameless. Friends, to the extent that you and I know that Jesus is the one who's pursued us, Jesus is the one who's died for us. Jesus is the one who took all of your guilt and shame, took the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, and he died in our place. And all of his blamelessness, his righteousness was transferred to us and all of our brokenness was put on him. When you know that God the Father sent his son on this rescue mission and Jesus relentlessly pursues you, even as the lost wayward sheep, he's like, that's mine, I know your." name and I'm coming after you. Like I will get you back until you know the longing that he has for you, the sacrifices that he made for you, the ways that he's seeking to build you up. You and I will never be able to do that for other people. But Paul is reminding us again, like, listen, love, it actually blesses. And he knows he can't do this in his own strength and he can't just rouse them to go and do this. But he's like, I can remind you that God is crazy about you, that God sent his son for you. It's why he would open up his letter to the Ephesians in chapter one, verse 18 with a prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Know the story you're part of the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's Paul's like, 
not just that you get an inheritance. It's that God looks at you and says, you're the inheritance. Like he's after you. Like he's pursuing you. There's nothing that will stand in his way. May you rest in the love and the affection that the Father has for you because when he looks at you, he does not see your brokenness. He does not see your treason and your rebellion. If you're in Christ, he sees Jesus and he continues to pour out his grace. So I'll close with this, with this quote from the theologian, the pastor, Stephen Um. He says this, what does love say? Love says, you are not noise. I hear you, I understand you. Love says, I know you all the way through. And despite your deepest fears, you are absolutely not nothing. You are highly valuable. Love says, you are worth giving away everything I have. Love says, I would die for you. Do we have anything less than this in the good news that has been reported to us about Jesus Christ? Jesus looks at all of our issues, at all of our lovelessness, our terrible batting average, whatever mess we've made most recently, and says not simply, I would die for you, but I did die for you. It's already done. I became nothing so you would know that you're not nothing. In this way, God, who after all is love, fills life with all the necessary meaning that we crave. May we, by God's grace, be this kind of community to see God bring transformation in the lives of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and the people that you thought were too far gone until you remembered, oh, he came and got me. So nobody is too far gone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your love that's been shown to us so beautifully in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you ascended and you sent, that the Spirit was sent to empower us, to remind us of the love that you have for us. Help us when we forget that. Help us to, even in this moment, as we get ready in a few moments to partake in this communion meal, this Lord's Supper that you've given to us, may we be reminded and nourished again in your love. And may you use us to be a community that loves people, that faithfully pursues people, because we know how deeply loved we are by the God of the universe. And so God, would you do this for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.